Welcome to the Science of Beers podcast with me, Michael McGee. Talking science and drinking beers with researchers down at the pub. So join us with a brew and let's cheers to science. Today, I'm going to be tapping into the brain of Agle Pizzoni. She is an expert in Byzantine literature. So we're going to be going on a journey into the past over the next hour or so to explore the uses of literature and the enjoyment of literature during the Byzantine Empire. I'm going to be talking to her about fake news, rap battles in the old empire, and towards the end we're going to be focusing on the use of emotions, how emotions were depicted in literature back then, so that we can ask the question, did people then think like we do today? I hope you uh, crack open a beer and uh, enjoy this this uh, chat with myself and Agli. The bars are still closed here in Denmark, so it was a virtual uh, beer that we had together. So please help us by uh, sharing this podcast. Recommend it to a friend. Uh, give it a give it a like. Give it a share. Uh, give it a review on whatever app you're using to listen to the podcast. I'm your host, Michael McGee. My guest is Agile Pizzoni from the Danish Institute for Advanced Study. Cheers to science. Aglaia Pizzoni, you are an assistant professor at the Department of History at the University of Southern Denmark in the Centre for Medieval Literature. You're also a fellow at the Danish Institute of Advanced Studies. Your research interests are the history of emotions and the emergence of a secular, non-confessional self in Byzantium. Yes. So today we're going to talk about uses of literature in Byzantium with particular focus on emotions. Yes. But before we do that, we're going to have to crack open a beer and have a cheers. Oh. Uh. I think. Oh, you're, I've got a can here. No, I got a bottle, a Edinburgh beer. An Edinburgh beer. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> in Innocent Gun. Innocent Gun? What is it, yeah. a, a lager or, or an IPA? It's a barrel-aged Scotch ale. Bar- a, a Scotch ale. ale. It's, yeah. It tastes like whiskey. Okay. You're <laughs> you're serious today then? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I needed it for today. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm on a Danish beer took by the company Tootl. Uh, it's called World Domination and it's uh, an Indian... Uh, it, it's really modest an and understated. <laughs> World Domination, yeah. <laughs> It's uh, just 6.2%. So, yep, it's okay, a good start. Mine, I'm not sure uh, how much is that, but it, I'll try it. must it. be strong it's if, it, if, yeah. if there's whiskey in it. Yeah. Uh, cheers. Oh, cheers. Skull. That's I, good. I should have said salute. You're from Italy. Yeah, salute. Salute. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, let's paint a picture first actually yeah uh byzantium when was the the empire of byzantium yeah i mean uh the the history of the byzantine empire is a very long history uh and uh, it spans uh, across uh, one millennium basically uh from uh the, the late fourth century until the fall of Constantinople in uh, 1453, when uh, 
the city and the empire therefore uh, were captured and conquered by the Ottomans. Um, First of all, I mean, I think that we, we, we should say that uh, we used to say Byzantine Empire, the Byzantines, but actually, I mean, this is not really the way they talked about themselves because they conceptualized themselves as the heirs of the Roman Empire. So they would say about themselves, we are the Romans. So, so, so they identified themselves as Romans and it was a continuation yeah. of the Roman Empire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, where did the name Byzantium come from? Uh, Byzantium was the name of uh, uh, the, 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 the Greek settlement of the city, I mean, of the site where uh, the, the city of Constantinople wa- was uh, built by uh, Constantine the Great. And that's why, I mean, uh, uh, in modern scholarship also, we, we, we talk about Byzantium and Byzantine Empire. Whenever I think of the Roman Empire, I'm picturing uh, emperors uh, in in white robes and I'm picturing, picturing gladiator games and I'm picturing goblets of wine and uh, whenever I whenever I picture Byzantium I'm picturing more of these uh, these uh, like mosaic iconographies and and uh, monks and much more of a religious uh, uh, theme yeah, I mean uh, religion was very important and was uh, uh, an essential part also in all the rituals, only the secular rituals, political rituals. So that was very important. But it was also, I mean, we, we get this static picture, you know, through the mosaics. But in reality, I mean, even though, I mean, the ceremonial was quite uh, um, uh, painstaking in a way and quite uh, uh, rigid. Uh, we there was also very lively culture. So I mean, these uh, um, these ceremonies were often accompanied by very, you know, as I said, lively spectacles. For instance, I mean, you know, in the Hippodrome, the Hippodrome was uh, this uh, uh, place where chariot races uh, took took place, and that was a very important uh, moment in the city life of Constantinople, and it was a. Uh, both a sport event, but also a political event, because uh, at the, there, there were these uh, circus factions. So the hippodrome could uh, contain uh, up to 40,000 people. So mm-hmm. it, it's huge. And it was uh, um, as wide as to contain four chariots. So there were these races with four chariots. And each chariot was accompanied by a color and there were supporters for each colors. So there were the white, the red, the blue, and the greens. And those uh, supporters uh, were really uh, vocal and could be used also for political purposes. Uh, like, I mean, like football clubs. I, I was, I'm we, thinking we, football we, clubs, we, yeah. We still have that in Italy. I mean, uh, it's, uh, they, and you know, there are power groups sometimes uh, still, and that was really strong uh, in Byzantium, especially in the first period. I mean, uh, of, of the empire. Well, th- that that is interesting because we're we're talking about at at the peak of the empire a huge expanse of land. Uh, yeah. We're talking about yeah. Yeah. modern day Greece, Turkey, Syria, North Africa. Yeah, Iberian Peninsula as well. In at the moment of you know the greatest expansion really because then i mean it was uh, really variable i mean the territorial extension of the empire uh, was hardly stable so you mentioned uh, religion was important back then but but in an area so big 
Uh, I imagine there was a few different religions present. The question is, d- did racism or sectarianism exist in, in the kingdom as it, as it does today? I think that we, we have to differentiate between uh, uh, the issue of race and uh, the issue of sectarianism. Uh, the latter could uh, more easily emerge uh, in terms of uh, different uh, uh, approaches to the Christian doctrine. So, I mean, schisms uh, and, you know, uh, different interpretations of uh, Christian theology, uh, where just think about uh, the, the, this huge period of time characterized by the so-called iconoclasm. So the, there was a, a moment in which uh, holy icons, holy images of Christ, of the Virgin, were forbidden. And so, and that really polarized uh, the, the political scene and uh, also the spiritual scene in, uh, in Constantinople for, uh, for a very long time, a couple of centuries at least. Uh, racism, there is, uh, I, I, I mean, it's a hot issue, of mm-hmm. course, uh, as concerns all the pre-modern world. But uh, uh, there is a very recent book, a very good book, by Roland Betancourt called Byzantine Intersectionality, where he explores precisely uh, the issue of racism. And he shows through some texts that uh, there was no such thing as we conceptualize it. Uh, And this too for most of the pre-modern world because there was no biological idea of uh, Mm -hmm. race. Uh, that, that's a modern invention from the late uh, 19th, early 20th century. Uh, it's true that uh, some uh, fixed features uh, might be ascribed to ethnicity, but it was more a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. So skin color didn't matter, really. And as you said, I mean, there was a huge uh, territorial extension and some of these territories would switch from one year to the other, for instance, from being Christian to being Muslims. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this, I mean, this brought about a notion of boundaries, which, were, which was more, much more porous and flexible than we would imagine. And if you think, I mean, in the 12th century, there is an estimate that in Constantinople, there were um, 400,000 people. And among them, 60 to 80,000 were foreigners. So it, it was a very cosmopolitan society. Uh, mm-hmm. And there were also neighborhoods, quarters that were just uh, you know, assigned to foreigners. There, there was a Venetian quarter, there was also the, Jew, the Jewish quarter, and also the Saracen. Uh, some some sources also mentioned these uh, uh, Saracen quarters where probably, I mean, uh, they, they had also common meals and, you know, social gathering, at least, I mean, this, the, judging from the words used to describe uh, these, these uh, areas. Um, and so these big cities were really, you know, a crossroad of people and cultures. What, what I'm thinking about here is, is just how fluid it was, like religion was then, and also the diversity of where people were from. So that, that kept changing, but the one thing that was consistent was the empire, the identity of being Roman, which yeah. which is which is very interesting. Yeah. It's like that was a much more stronger 
self-identity than religion or what yeah. country you were from yeah yeah and if you think about it i mean this diversity was already inherent to the roman empire because i mean the roman empire was uh, uh tolerant by definition once i mean the problem is that the christians wouldn't recognize imperial authority uh but i mean uh, there was a fairly uh, good tolerance towards uh, also different uh, religious forms. Uh, so the problem uh, is always when the political authority was put in question. Mm. I want to know a little bit about the, the structure of society because I want to know which kind of people had access to, to literature, which kind of people could read and write. So if you could tell me a little bit about the, the structure of society. Of course, I mean, um, these changes in, in, in the story of the empire in the centuries that I know better, uh, which are the 11th and the 12th century, and perhaps this is also a reason why I like, I like those centuries, uh, we see uh, social movements, uh, we see raising, uh, new raising classes uh, that uh, get to power through culture. So having a good education all of a sudden becomes a way to ensure uh, a good position within the administration of the empire. And this brings, of course, I mean, social change. So we have a new class of administrators that emerges quite clearly from our sources. And, uh, and also, I mean, uh, new money, uh, this is quite clear in the 12th century. I mean, the, and so uh, this also brings about a, bonnet, a burdening of literacy. So uh, reading and writing uh, become more common. Uh, and, uh, and these, I mean, we see also provincial families, for instance, going to the capital and uh, um, getting closer to the imperial circles, really. And uh, that's why, I mean, I really like this period because we, we see this movement, this ferment, this, this change, and uh, this, this possibility also of uh, uh, making a career through education. And that was possible also for people coming from, you know, a dis dis disadvantaged background to a certain extent, mm -hmm. because one, uh, one of the, you know, uh, of the enterprise of this dynasty uh, ruling in the 12th century uh, was precisely to relaunch an institution called uh, the orphanage. Uh, it's quite self-explanatory, uh, which uh, was designed to uh, allow uh, also uh, young people in need to get an education. And what's really interesting is that often also were prisoners for instance, I mean, from uh, Muslim war prisoners were, you know, uh, educated at the orphanage and became integral to uh, the uh, Constantinopolitan society. It's very interesting to hear a thousand years ago, a, a large empire like that had a social welfare system and it had a structure in place that if you had an education, you could make it. You know, your, your, your yeah. fate wasn't totally dictated at birth as yeah, it was in yeah, some other cultures yeah. at that time. One more question before we move on to the next section. Were they drinking beer in Byzantine? Uh, I, I, I mean, I kind of expected this question. <laughs> so I think I, I think I remember they did. 
Yeah. But uh, uh, I, I don't have any detail about the trade and how it worked. They were definitely, definitely into the wine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, in all these uh, um, banquets, uh, for instance, I mean, uh, the one have described uh, for it, the, the epiphany, uh, they drank and they ate a lot, really. It, it was a large gathering of, pe of people eating and drinking and listening to speeches. So this was, you know, like a, 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 an occasion in which culture was performed uh, because they, they would eat, drink and listen. And and so the these um, these performances were they were they were they was it theater were they reading some kind of text were they was was literature involved in the performances? Yes, yes. I mean uh, the theater uh, aspect is very interesting and it's uh, it's been uh, uh, um, debated for a very long time because uh, uh, very often these gatherings are called in the sources theater. Mm -hmm. So this is the term they use. And so, of course, I mean, discussions, uh, um, there, there have been discussions among scholars what they meant by theater. And the consensus is that, I mean, they meant uh, this kind of, you know, uh, oral performance, which uh, very often took uh, the shape of a, uh, like, duel of words, if you want, so there were uh, different uh, uh, people involved L performing. Like a battle rap? Uh, if you want, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, we, we know, I mean, from indications in the manuscripts uh, uh, that preserved some of these texts, that uh, uh, some of them were uh, produced impromptu. So uh, people were asked, please, Sing me uh, something about that, wow. and you and you had to be able to stand up and perform. So what you said, I mean, that it's 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 good that culture could could be used to make a career for oneself is true, but it was also risky business because if one of those performances went bad, your career was over. So it was, uh, that's why it was so important to be trained properly in rhetoric. And uh, so well, how did they train in rhetoric? Did... There, there were schools, I mean, uh, especially uh, like uh, uh, at the level that we, we call uh, uh, higher education. Uh, there, were, there were schools uh, uh, belonging to the network of uh, uh, the patriarchate. So the, the great church was, I mean, the main church in Constantinople uh, um, and uh, it was linked to the patriarchate. And then there were uh, probably uh, um, other schools uh, in other church outposts. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, each school had... Uh, um, uh, its own teachers assigned. And so there was also an, uh, like a job industry uh, in a way behind these uh, positions which were very coveted uh, by intellectuals. Uh, and, and there were also kind of, uh, you know, wars between schools uh, and, uh, and we can see that in different approaches to uh, rhetoric. And there were handbooks uh, that would train uh, the people to uh, know the theory and practice also uh, rhetoric for these purposes of performance. What are these books that you mentioned that, that they learned from? 
Uh, so, I mean, the, the, these books, there is a handbook, which is called a Homogenean Corpus uh, from uh, Homogenes, uh, who was an author who lived uh, in between the second and third century um, CE. So, uh, mm-hmm. very, I mean, uh, belonging to the Greek Roman period. And that became the standard, standard handbook. But of course, I mean, as I said, uh, it, it, it had been produced uh, much earlier. And so we have, a, especially in this period, 11th, 12th century, and these are the texts I study, there are commentaries that are produced, uh, which are designed to, to update these handbooks, basically. Yeah. So, and to speak to contemporary audiences. A, a handbook from... Uh hundreds of years before yeah yeah uh, they were used still as handbooks mm-hmm. but of course they needed uh, some sort of some, some sort of update yeah. and the update took the shape of these commentaries which are preserved uh, uh, in an you know self-standing form sometimes uh, like uh, manuscripts or written in the margins of earlier copies of these handbooks mm-hmm. uh, and, and these are interesting because they they show different approaches to the matter, which often reflect different trends in these schools I've mentioned. Would you would you compare it to like a modern day version or an old version of modern day TED? I think that those performances uh, could be uh, like uh, thought about in those terms. I think that sometimes, I mean, more improvisation was required yeah. than a standard TED talk, <laughs> had a lot of rehearsal. So it was a riskier business, I think, for a, a Byzantine speaker, for a young person uh, asked uh, uh, to perform in such theaters because they, they really were there with their body and with their memory. And uh, we, they didn't have all the tools also mm-hmm to record that we have today. So it was really all stored in their mind. And uh, you have also to imagine that when they were performing, it's not just you know what they made up uh, through their ability of, uh, to speak, but also all the quotations from ancient works they could insert yeah. just from memory. Wow. So all these references, and it was all there, all in their brain. Okay. You had to be fairly, fairly clever yeah. to to make it in that in that world. So, so that that's the oral world. What about uh, literature? How how did the Byzantines enjoy literature? I mean, I see oral performances also as literature. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't see such you know um, clear cut divide between yeah. the written and the oral world in when it comes especially to rhetoric and to this kind of you know production uh it's true that uh very often i mean when they get got to be published uh, mm-hmm. these speeches were revised and when we know that because very often i mean they are too long for a performance so they are expanded probably uh, for the written version and uh, in terms of consumption of literature, we have, I mean, uh, from some texts, I mean, we, we get the feeling that uh, they would, uh, as we do, for instance, read in bed yeah. and fall asleep while reading, for instance. Uh, there are people who describe that. Well, were, were they reading uh, novels as, as, as we would know? 
that's interesting because in the, in the period I, I studied, there was a revival mm. of the novel uh, in Greek Roman times, uh, starting probably around, uh, I mean, uh, at the beginning of the Christian era. Uh, all of a sudden, I mean, we have a new genre emerging, uh, which is the genre of the novel. And it's, uh, it's fairly standard, at least for the text that we have. It, th those are stories of uh, boy meets girl, uh, boy and girl fall in love. Cla classic story uh, arc of uh, drama and fall and suspense. And, and they are separated and they go through a series of mishaps, uh, yeah. um, um, false death, pirates, uh, um, um, attempts of rape, uh, all these, you know, sort of uh, features of adventure stories. Mm -hmm. uh, and probably it was a very popular genre uh, because we have, uh, we have texts uh, that are not so refined in terms of style, but are really just, you know, uh, punchy in terms of uh, a willingness of being gripping and uh, also full of graphic details. Uh, so they really, uh, it's it's a traditional feature, you know, of uh, this uh, kind of adventure, adventure novels that even, I mean, now we have. Would we be able to say that uh, Homer's Odyssey was a, a novel? Oh, that's that's a really clever remark. Because uh, in fact, I mean, uh, it, that's the prototype of the travelogue, of the travel, uh, not, of a, a story based on travel. And uh, very often we see, uh, especially in the more refined uh, uh, um, novels, uh, stories uh, from the Greek Roman period, we see that authors tend to follow or to allude to the blueprint of the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. So uh, the short answer is, Yes, yeah. uh, and uh, and it was uh, it was uh, surely a reference they had in mind and an influence also on the way they structured their stories. So what's interesting is that uh, these these novels uh, was read throughout uh, all the Byzantine millennium, and we we have I mean uh, sources that testify uh, to that, but uh, no new texts were produced. We don't know really why. Uh, one of the reasons uh, might be that uh, uh, with the emergence of a new genre uh, called hagiography, so the life of saints, mm -hmm. uh, this demand for, you know, like adventure stories was partially uh, met through this uh, other textual typology. Okay, so, so so the market was asking for stories about the saints, adventure stories about the saints specifically. I, yeah, I think, yeah, there's a um, concise way to put it, but yes. Uh, and uh, what's interesting is that in the 12th century, all of a sudden, we see a new production of these novels. So out of the blue, we have a series of texts that really remind us of the, you know, uh, of the novels from the uh, Greek Roman period with the same, uh, let's say, secular content of uh, boy meets girl and girl and boy fall in love. Mm -hmm. um, we don't know why, I mean, they started again writing uh, the, this kind of text. That, that's a big question mark, actually. Like, like a novel today, uh, and novels back then, whenever you have a, a made-up character, you're able to put yourself into their mind, into their into their frame of uh, reference. Yeah, yeah. Are are there any uh, self 
autobiographical, well, not autobiographical pieces of literature back then where the person describes oh, himself yeah. and then therefore we can we can put ourselves in the mind of an actual yeah. person from Byzantine. Yeah. yeah. So uh, first of all, putting oneself in someone's, uh, someone else's shoes was an exercise that they had to do uh, in these rhetorical schools. And these exercises were called uh, uh, pogumnasmata, so preparatory exercises. Mm -hmm. And uh, the teacher would ask uh, a pupil, uh, imagine to be Achilles uh, taken by grief because of the loss of Patroclus, uh, Achilles' friend and perhaps lover what would you say? And they had to impersonate, you know, Achilles. So the idea of impersonation, of impersonating someone else's feeling was really central to this kind of uh, uh, literary culture. But we also have um, autobiographical accounts and they become, I would say, they become more frequent in these centuries I'm interested in. Uh, and uh, I, in particular, I mean, I work on an author that like takes every opportunity he has to talk about himself, <laughs> even when, you know, you wouldn't expect that. He, you know, finds room for his own personal rants and, you know, like uh, complaints and uh, uh, memories about his life. So it's... Uh, a, to, 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 to the extent that sometimes, I mean, I get the feeling that I, 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 if I started writing a biography, I could go year by year by piecing everything together. Yeah. Well, what's the name of this person? It's a, he has a funny name. I mean, in English, it's John Sepsis. Okay. Well, I guess <laughs> his actual name isn't pronounced like that. <laughs> I, I'm going to crack open another beer here. Oh, there. Yeah. I got a bit fizzy there. Uh, cheers, Skull. Cheers. So, so you have a with this this guy John, you have a a, a real yeah. a real insight into into the workings of his mind, um, because he he was a pro prolific writer about himself. Yeah, I think he was also a bit obsessive, probably. I mean, but don't quote me on that. I mean, this my just you know like um, how you say. Uh, non-professional impression <laughs> yeah. I have about him. Uh, but yes, I mean, and it's not just that because I I, I was, uh, you know, lucky enough uh, to find uh, a manuscript um, uh, which is preserved in the Leiden University Library mm -hmm. where it's, uh, it's one of these commentaries on uh, a homogenous rhetorical handbook I've mentioned before. And... Uh, it's a copy uh, that has been edited by he, he him, himself. So, I mean, we, we have a, a huge amount of uh, marginal notes in the manuscript in his own hand. So that gives us access really to his workshop and it's as if we could see him work 
uh, before our very eyes because we can see what changed. I mean, uh, we can see um, also uh, the, the issues uh, he had with copies uh, and he talks about himself. He talks about, he says how old he was. He complains because even if he's 70, still he has to correct proofs basically. And uh, you know, losing his high side while doing it. And so it's, it's really a first-hand account in every uh, sense of the term. Okay, so it's a, a, a nice portal into, into his thinking, and he sounds like quite an eccentric character. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally eccentric, yeah. <laughs> and uh, he had a lot of quarrels with, you know, all sorts of people uh, moving in these elite circles of the capital. Uh, he had issues against, uh, you know, contemporary education. So, uh, But that's useful for, for us as historians because we can we can see a lot of behind the scenes. So did, did, people, did authors, like autobiographical authors such as John, did, did, did they have a, how did they present themselves? Did they have, did, did other people besides John have an agenda? Yeah, that's, that's I mean, they all had an agenda, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, uh, but usually, I mean, for instance, one of the places we uh, often find autobiographical statements are preface, prefaces. So in the prefaces, yeah. usually, I mean, you know, they explain why they put together this work, why they deemed it uh, worth uh, of being published, uh, uh, and uh, there was a sort of etiquette, if you want, in when uh, one wrote these pieces. Uh, and uh, this etiquette uh, um, requested that uh, one uh, one didn't have to put himself really center stage too much. So there was a an ethics of humility, uh, if you want, very often. Uh, so you couldn't brag about yourself. You couldn't say, yeah. Yeah, I'm... I mean, you couldn't say, I mean, I'm writing that because I'm the best on the market, you know, and. Uh, it, with this book, you you'll get something unique. You you won't get uh, in other books. I mean, you couldn't do that. I mean, it wasn't deemed proper. Not proper. Like like, like Denmark. Denmark is is different. A different culture <laughs> yeah. from where I'm from and you're from. You know, in Denmark, there's a thing called Jentelone, where you know you're yeah. no better than your neighbor. Which, yeah, which, which yeah. is actually, it's, I think it's quite a it's a, quite a healthy thing. You know, to, to, yeah. <laughs> But it, a lot of people, there's been a lot of commentary on Yantilo, but it's basically, you're no better than your neighbor and don't do anything to stick out from the crowd, which is why uh, if you walk along the streets of Owens or Copenhagen, people are generally dressed in similar colored yeah. clothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. I mean, it's, it's quite Sorry for the Danes listening for that stereotype there, but that's, that's there's some evidence to suggest it's true. <laughs> But it's quite comparable. For instance, I mean, one of the tropes, or so one of the ways that this issue was addressed, was to say, "Okay, I'm writing that, but I couldn't, I couldn't help because everyone asked me for that. All my friends pushed me to write and to publish this thing. And I'm doing that only for their sake and not just, you know, for my uh, desire of glory mm-hmm. or, you know, fame." Uh, or, and so this was, a, for instance, a very common way to, you know, like uh, uh, get around this uh, etiquette issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
and we don't see that with my John. I was so just about to say, that. John doesn't sound like a character that, that's that's kept to the to the to the rule of being humble. Well, <laughs> he, he we don't the, see that. The sound of his yeah. own voice. No, uh, he he plays a version of the humility game in that he says that he didn't want to take part in this, you know, world. Uh, of uh, official teachers I mentioned before. And so he chose a more private life uh, on his own will. So there is this version of, uh, you know, the humility card. Mm -hmm. But in fact, I mean, he says that he chose that because he despised those other people. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow, he sounds like he's on some kind of <laughs> spectrum, or John. How, how do you feel reading, if you have access to the, say, original text, that somebody wrote a thousand years ago about, yeah. about themselves. How do you feel looking at that? I, you know, that I mean, uh, that was when I realized that because I, I didn't realize it straight when I, I had this text in front of me. But when I realized that, that I mean, I felt that like that was the highlight of my career, really. <laughs> and also, I mean, you know, I felt as if I was sitting next to him. It, wow. was, it was so, so bizarre, really, uh, as if he he was he was speaking to me. And imagine, I mean, it was uh, I think in November, Danish November, very late in the afternoon. I was in my office, and I was kind kind of trying to understand what he was saying in one of these notes, in which he says, "Okay, I'm old. I'm seventy. And when I understood that. I thought, oh my God, I mean, that's that's unbelievable because I already had the suspicion it was him. Mm -hmm. But when I read that, I, I almost felt like, I mean, okay, he came to me to assure me that, okay, it's really me, you know? <laughs> it, 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 I'm imagining archaeologists, you know, you can find uh, things that people used in the past and that's fascinating enough, but to have the written word, you're really getting a feel for, for their emotions and how they were. Are they worth thinking? Yeah. Oh, I, you can totally see his emotions uh, in, in his handwriting because sometimes he gets so angry with the copies, for instance, that he, you know, he he punctures the paper. Wow, he just stabs it with his, uh, yeah. his whatever <laughs> he's, he's using so, to write. <laughs> he's so pissed off. So, I mean, really, you can, you can see the emotions from the handwriting and that's another amazing thing, I find. Wow. So, so about emotions then, because you're 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 a historian of emotions. Oh, I try to be at least. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, like, we 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 they had they spoke a different language than we're speaking now in in Byzantine. Our our, our use of words to to describe emotions today, like anger, happiness, sadness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did they have this similar uses back then, or did they have a different way of using words to describe their emotions yeah that's that's a very good question uh i think that uh, i mean uh, it, it's really hard to answer uh even i mean even in nowadays because i mean it's for instance uh, in cross-linguistic research about emotions uh, one of the big question is how do we understand whether two words belonging to two different languages mean the same emotion Mm -hmm. So the fact is that very often, I mean, we have uh, a, an emotion word, let's call that an emotion word. And this emotion word more or less uh, describes uh, the same kind of, of uh, 
um, uh, psychobiological reaction, right? Uh, but the value we associate to that reaction uh, very often changes according to uh, the cultural environment, uh, the time we are in. Uh, for instance, in the case of dejection, I mean, in the first text, we find the term and the first text, when I say first text, I, I, I mean as early as Homer, mm -hmm. right? Uh, dejection is uh, the sadness that uh, comes from missing a target. So uh, you throw your spear, you miss your target, you are like, you know, really, uh, you lower your gaze and you have this feeling of sadness. And it's, of course, a very negative emotion. Mm -hmm. So when we have the transition to the Christian period, the same kind of uh, awareness of failure becomes uh, somewhat positive become, because it becomes an enticement to better oneself, oneself to acknowledge the sinful nature of uh, men uh, or women, uh, and uh, uh, to improve oneself mm -hmm. through devotion. And that, that's why, I mean, we have dejection describing the same kind of psychobiological reaction, but the value ascribed to it becomes positive. So when, when we work with emotion words, there are many dimensions mm -hmm. that have to be uh, taken into account. So the, the, the descriptive di dimension, which pertains to this, you know, uh, like a psychobiological uh, uh, area which is there but also i mean the value dimension and the moral dimension uh which uh, can change more easily anger for instance i mean he's characterized and that's cross culture by uh, increased uh, uh, heartbeat uh a feeling of uh, uh hotness uh, uh becoming red uh, mm -hmm. and all these features i mean are really transcultural but then, I mean, the way you make sense of it uh, mm -hmm. might change a lot according to the period, according to the language, according to the place you are you, you yeah, live in. So, so the actual, uh, what you feel with these emotions are, are the same, but how you then, uh, how, how you deal with it or is it changes depending on uh, the, the circumstances, the culture that you're, that you're living in? Yeah, the emotion is a combination of what you, I mean, feeling is already, you know, like a, a very subjective uh, uh, term. Feeling is already, I mean, implies your own perception, mm -hmm. uh, implies uh, you, your own appraisal of, of what you, what's going on in your uh, nervous system. So the uh, emotion is uh, like this feedback loop, which is, uh, uh, which consists of the psychobiological aspect, so what happens in the body and in the nervous system, and the way we appraise that. Mm -hmm. And in the way we appraise that, there are other dimensions, such as you know, arousal, value, uh, moral, cultural. So, And all these together, and this feedback that is ongoing, represents the emotional event. Mm -hmm. So at least this is the framework I subscribe to yeah. because I think that it works very well also with, you know, with the cultural uh, aspects 
uh, and uh, with you know literary representations of emotions. Well, well that, that that's it. Uh, if if you this this could be a complicated question, but t- today, especially on social media and even in in the media in the news, a lot of the things that we click on or things that appeal to our, our core emotions, things that make us angry or make us happy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the, the, indeed, that's where a lot of fake news comes from. So so lies and deceit that, say, politicians tell or just media tell just to get you to click so that they can they can sell products to you that you don't need. Yeah. Uh, and the, even those products, the advertisements, the marketing for, for these products, they appeal to our emotions. For example, you, you couldn't look at an advertisement for soap that says soap is going to clean you. It, it it's trying to say okay buy the soap and you'll be like this beautiful beautiful person that's currently using the soap uh, so, so what i'm getting at here is is emotions are used today to manipulate people was there a As they always have been, <laughs> okay okay so so so, so was there a, a literature political use of emotions yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that was uh, that was uh, um, quite common. Um, yeah, it, yeah, political also in a very broad sense. Uh, I'm thinking, for instance, I mean, we have this historian uh, in the sixth century uh, called Procopius who wrote two histories: an official one and a secret history. Okay. And and in the secret history. Uh, he uh, portrays uh, uh, Justinian and his wife Theodora as, you know, the most debased person and uh, persons, and he clearly has the goal of uh, housing disgust and hated in uh, uh, his his readers, and that was quite, you know, like it was like a pamphlet, you know, uh, yeah, against. It, it, it's slanderous. Yeah, yeah, and and that was, you know all based on the emotions that these really graphic tales could uh, elicit uh, in the reader. And also in other uh, fields, uh, I'm thinking, for instance, uh, of the usage uh, of fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, fear, and not just fear, you know, for the uh, outer groups, but also in-group fear. So fear for, um, toward the sin, that, that's particularly strong uh, in uh, homilies, for instance, to keep together monastic communities, mm-hmm. uh, the leaders would appeal to fear. They would really try uh, through their uh, homilies to um, arouse fear. In fear to world. commit sin. Yeah, yeah. So it's not fear of the stranger, but fear of what you might do uh, as as an individual um like, like invo- invoke fear for like stories of what's going to happen to you in the afterlife yeah 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 and and that was a um a way to forge a community bounds to to create a glue for the community uh okay so so w- admittedly w- a very gloomy one yeah but how it worked uh, uh often i mean uh, so the portrayal of emotions in in literature so so t- today we have a, a lot of a lot of different words like uh if i'm thinking about something positive like excellent brilliant awesome fantastic uh marvelous uh, great uh, uh 
we have a, lo- a lot of things to describe something that's fairly similar. So, or, or and, I'm, and I imagine they must have came from somewhere. And I, I was thinking about this, and if if you look at art from from cave paintings to Van Gogh, I, I could see it as a, an increase in complexity from two dimensional paintings to three dimensional paintings, where where the expression of emotions was much more complex. Is this true? Am I just imagining this, or or has literature also increased in, has literature tools evolved in such a way that we are able to describe emotions much more articulately today? Yeah, I, I think that uh, um, the comparison perhaps holds only up to a certain point. Yeah. Uh, because I mean, when we deal with literature, we deal with words and language. And mm-hmm. language is something that we are born with. I mean, that it's part of our humanity, mm-hmm. right? Whereas, I mean, uh, we are, yeah, we are not born with the skills of painting. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not, I mean, part really of uh, of our nature uh, as as human beings. And uh, and this a basic difference, if you between words and images i i feel mm-hmm. uh even though i'm sure that not everyone would agree on that but i mean this uh, uh how i feel and and when it comes to to pictures there are also uh technical skills to develop uh that probably are more objectively uh, measurable if you want i mean uh I just think about you know the um, uh, perspective, so and uh, um, the, the 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 technical advances we we, we have also in uh, technical design and mm-hmm. and, and stuff. Um, I, I I think that uh, uh, probably since the since the beginning, I mean w- there is more complexity in the literary works. So uh, and I think that they're uh, probably uh, what if they don't look com- uh, as complex as modern works yeah. to us, I think that's because we cannot see through the scripts that uh, they um, they they are made of for literary works. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. because I wouldn't say, for instance, that Homer is less less complex than a modern work. I mean, I wouldn't say that. Uh, and I, and it, it, it really captures also the complexity of uh, our emotional reactions. Uh, in, uh, but we, we, we have to be able to see through it. So mm-hmm. that the effort has historians of literature that we have to do. Yeah. Uh, an example. I mean, just I mean, this really a basic example. I I always uh, think about is our silent movies. Yeah. I mean, silent movies. If we watch them now, I mean, they look really almost ridiculous to us. But I'm sure that for the viewer uh, back then, they could relate to the bodily expression of emotions, and probably, I mean, I'm I'm also sure that. Uh, this this way of you know storing uh, the emotions and representing the emotions had a, an impact in turn on the viewer than when you know the viewers were experiencing something similar they would you know have in mind the way 
you know, the, yeah. these uh, silent actors moved. That, that's a very good analogy. I, I, I remember watching an interview with people who were, who were describing their ex, their first experience in cinema for with black and white or, or silent films, and they were blown away. Their mind were minds were blown. They were so into it. They were really emotionally moved, scared yeah. and and excited and and on all of the probably to a much greater extent than we would be today if we went to a, a cinema and saw all the all of the computer graphics and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that we would find the scripts artificial. That's the point. Yeah. Because we cannot see them through the same eyes that they were seen by the first viewers. So, uh, and that's that's the great task we have to recover something of those eyes. I mean, even well, well when... that, that's what I want to get at. I want like where people in like a eleven hundred years ago were they were they thinking like us? You know, if if we met. If we met John today, we would probably think he was a bit crazy. But yeah, I, I, I don't think. I mean, I don't think that uh, he would have liked to have anything to do with me because he was also a very misogynist guy. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you can find guys yeah. like that today. <laughs> yeah. uh, in in uh, in in researching uh, for this. For this podcast, actually, I, I stumbled upon something that I want, want to get at as well because I, I found it fascinating. Uh, there, there was a prime minister of, of, of England in the late 1800s called William Gladstone, and mm-hmm. he, he was obsessed with Homer. And he, he wrote uh, about it and he made the observation that the color blue was never mentioned. And, and so this inspired other, other scholars to go back into ancient text, uh, the, the Iliad or the Bible, and notice that. Yeah. The color blue was never mentioned, and and so they could they could they could see around the world whenever they except for the Egyptians, they could see around the world that in literature they first started to describe black and white, and then they started to describe red, and then green, and finally blue entered the literature. I'm talking chronologically. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And the theory the theory is that it's it's because they couldn't make these colors. They could make red. They could make green, and then it it. Like blue only came along whenever they they discovered the rare earth mineral mineral lapis lazuli, yeah, and then yeah. blue entered the the spectrum of of clothing dye and and paint. It was so interesting to to hear that they they didn't have the a word to describe blue, and then the, it draws the question: if if you if you lack the word for something, are you able to see it? Are you able to see it the same way you can? If yeah. You have the this is a very thorny issue and uh, one that's uh, hard to resolve one uh, once for all. Uh, it, it's true that, I mean, uh, probably we we have a notion of colors based on spectrography. Yeah. So uh, on the spectrum, uh, uh, whereas, I mean, uh, the, the first way, I mean, the, the original way to label colors was, was object-based. So you would name colors based on the objects that they uh, represented them, right? Um, uh, and uh, yeah, uh, but again, I mean, this is not really an area of expertise uh, I have. And uh, I don't think that they saw the, the world uh, differently. Well, um, I, I just, I, just I, know, I know it's not your area, but I, I just, I just found, it, found it fascinating. The, 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 whole, the whole opened up a little bit more and today there's a tribe in, in Namibia called the, the Himba and they have they don't have a word for blue 
they don't have any pigment to make blue, but they have yeah. dozens of words to describe shades of green. Yeah, and, yeah. And so they made an, an experiment where they had a, a circle of 12 different greens and one blue and asked yeah. the people to identify which one was blue. And they couldn't get the blue. But then they changed one of the shades of green and asked people from different cultures to, to point out where the different shade of green was. And they couldn't mm-hmm. see it. But the, the Himba were able to straight away point out the different shade of green. Yeah. Uh, so the theory would be it's because they have the word for it. So the, the brain processes uh, observations whenever the brain can, can put words on it and describe it. I think, I mean, I, um, a, a bit like with emotions, there is this feedback loop. Uh, for instance, I mean, uh, I've mentioned that the, we have this, you know, um, psychobiological features of anger, you know, right? Feeling hot and, uh, and yeah. the, the, these, these uh, uh, reactions, I mean, and that are based in our nervous system, has given life to certain metaphors, no? Uh, yes. Uh, to express emotions, and those are grounded in the way we feel. But then, I mean, the, these metaphors, in turn, start shaping the way we think and the way we conceptualize uh, emotions. And so, the, the language in this respect has an impact on the way. We, we see the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, uh, so, I so, think so that my, my ears are steaming. Uh, you know, there, there's steam coming out of my yeah. ears to describe anger. Yeah. And if you see something with steam coming out yeah. of your ears, you're yeah. like, okay, I know and what that's, that That's, means. I mean, a, a variant, I would say, of the container metaphor. Very often, I mean, these kind of emotions are uh, like uh, um, uh, described as a uh, liquid that cannot be contained. Uh, and that's a cross-cultural metaphor, really, for uh, uh, for overwhelming emotions such mm-hmm. as anger. And of course, I mean, but this, you know, which is grounded in the way we feel, uh, then sh- starts shaping also the way we think and w- the way we see the world. Uh, but it, it it is so fascinating that 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 uses of language and 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 literature can shape, can really shape how we see the world and how we yeah, think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's. I think that that's that's uh, uh, totally true, and uh, and that's why I mean words are, might be dangerous as well. <laughs> yes, I love it. Uh, just just before before we end, uh, I want to ask you, how did you get into this field? How did you become a uh, a, a Byzantist? Uh, Byzantinist. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, I I became. I mean, I. Since, I mean, when I was in high school, I was fascinated with the Middle Ages, really. Maybe because, I mean, when uh, when I was younger, I mean, it was the heyday of this new approach to medieval history that really looked at a, a social history, a micro history as well. So, yeah, I mean, it looked really at everyday life mm-hmm. uh, of people in the Middle Ages, and I found it very fascinating. To, to try to put yourself in their shoes? Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like yeah. that we could really see uh, and almost touch uh, uh, with what 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 they they were doing, and um, you know, their, also their ideology. Um, but then, I mean, I was led astray, and I started doing classics <laughs> at the university. And so, I mean, by a series of 
you know, chance encounters and uh, fortuitous uh, circumstances, I went back to the Middle Ages, uh, so Byzantium. So if, if I think about my trajectory uh, now, I mean, I feel that, you know, I, in the end, I mean, I came back home where, to, to what really mm. uh, I was passionate about in my teenage years. So, If you had a time machine, where would you go? Ah, uh, that's, uh, oh my God. <laughs> I, I've thought about that yeah. very often. Uh, I think that, I mean, by now I would choose a uh, 12th century Constantinople. Yes. Yeah, uh, I uh, would like to see, to see it really and to see all the things we cannot see anymore because we have lost all this documentation. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll bet, but that would certainly be fun. Um, so mentioned at the start, you're you're part of the Danish Institute for Advanced Study, and yeah. uh, and and this this season of the podcast, uh, I have a, a different guest from this this network, and the whole idea of this network is is to bring people from different uh, different uh, areas of expertise. Yeah, have have you found it useful to interact with people that are coming from completely uh, different uh, fields of study? Totally, I mean, totally. It's uh, it's for me, it's it's really important also. Uh, because different approaches, I mean, uh, are really helpful uh, in a broad way to address uh, what uh, uh, you study. I mean, what I'm studying, uh, I'm studying from a different perspective and to see things differently and maybe to find also uh, new questions uh, to ask. Um, and also, I mean, uh, this just, I mean, like very recent, uh, I recently got interested in uh, the relationship between uh, rhetoric and science, so to understand the rhetoric of science. And so now I really look forward to establishing some more concrete cooperation uh, in this in this respect with people working in mathematics, for instance, uh, and physics, I mean, mathematics and physics, and, uh, and also in, um, theories of learning yeah. because i want uh, i want to see i mean uh, um, how i mean the, the texts i study uh, can tie in with also modern approaches uh, and uh, you know uh, uh, yeah uh, and to try this uh, multidisciplinary approach to to the text great great to hear great to hear that that, that people from different fields are, are interacting because you know ideas come from diversity yeah, yeah, uh, and I really believe in that. I really believe in that, and uh, I'm I'm always very excited to you know like go out of my comfort zone and uh, learn uh, learn a new uh, new knowledge. Mm-hmm. So, well, Agley, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Absolutely fascinating to have have an okay. insight into life in 12th century Constantinople. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers, and thank you. Really nice talking to you. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed that trip to Byzantium. If you want to follow up and do some more research, I will link to some of Agley's work in the description of this podcast. Also, please consider supporting this podcast. You can do that in a variety of ways. You can recommend the podcast, tell a friend about the podcast, leave us a review on whatever app or website you're using to listen to the podcast. And uh, yeah, tune in next time. I have been your host, Michael McGee. Cheers to science.